Okay, we are zipping along. We finish, we're finishing First Chronicles this morning and getting into Second Chronicles. Two more weeks and we'll be done with Second Chronicles. <laughs> it's just amazing a book that size. I do it so fast. <laughs> um, that's the advantage of if there is material to find boring, we'll be done with it really fast. Although today's was not boring, I found it quite interesting. We didn't have any long lists of names in in our reading for today. I don't get a whole lot out of these lists of names, I'll have to admit. There were two kings and established two wars. Yeah, actually we covered quite a bit of history. Uh, what the, the, the majority of the book of Chronicles is about which king? Yeah, David. You can see there... Um, most of the most of the first chronicles is on on David, and and the closest to him is Solomon. He only gets nine chapters. David had what close to twenty, something like twenty chapters there. Um, so yeah, he uh, and and there's a reason for that. The, the the chronicler is trying to set forth David as the model. Here's what the king uh, of Israel ought to be like. Um, now, leaving off David, what's the major theme of Chronicles? The temple. The temple, yes. And, and that even includes David. Um, we, we talked last week about how when, uh, when the various conquests of David were discussed, uh, part of the story was how much uh, gold and silver he was bringing in to the temple. I mean, for the temple, he was bringing, he was placing it at the tabernacle at the time, but it was for the temple. And in this morning's lesson, he tells about how he's been devoting himself to preparing for the temple. Um, so he didn't get to build the temple, but he did everything he could up to that point. Apparently, he got the specific instructions from God. Yes, yes, he did. He, he got the he got the direction from God about it. Um, all right, let me look at. Um, let's, let's see. Yeah, there we go. We'll look at the time frame we're talking about. Uh, we're at David, so we're at roughly a thousand BC, and actually we're at the very end of his life because he just has a couple speeches and then he dies. Um, So in chapter twenty-eight, um, he he, ha- he gave a speech to all the officials of Israel. He called everybody in and um, basically turning things over to his son. And he kind of reviews why he wasn't the one to build the temple and what was the reason that he gives in this speech. Yeah. Now we didn't know that before. You remember back in when when God told him he wasn't the man to do it, he didn't mention that. But um, at some point, apparently, he had told David, and David now tells the rest of the people it's because he was a man of war. And we should keep in mind that these things are intended to be types, intended to be shadows. Um, uh, who is the ultimate one that all these things are foreshadowing who's going to build the temple for God? Jesus. Jesus, yes. And He's a man of peace. 
He didn't. He didn't come in. I mean, when he rode into into Jerusalem, he didn't ride in on a stallion as a a warrior. He's a man of peace, and um, his methods are so different from ours. Um, we, we got we got a hint of that back when we were doing Elijah. You remember when Elijah went down to Horeb, the Mount of God, and um, he had all these dramatic things happen, like a big earthquake and a big fire. And what did it say after each one of those? God wasn't in it. What was God in? Just a, a, a gentle. I think we said it's a gentle breeze, uh, or a, a slight sound of a gentle breeze. Yeah, it was. And and when we think of how can the world be changed, we don't think of doing it with a gentle breeze. <laughs> we need earthquakes. We need um, great uh, upheavals, social revolutions and all of this. But God does things in a very different way. And so, to foreshadow the Messiah, it has to be man of peace. And who was that going to be? Solomon. Yes, and his name even means peace. Um, so, in chapter 28... Uh, this first chronicles, he he gave Solomon the plan for the temple that God had given to him, um, even including how much the weight of the gold to be used for the lampstands and everything. I mean, it was really very detailed. Um, and notice in verse twenty, he said to his son Solomon, "Be strong and courageous." Have we heard that before? Yeah, that just keeps coming up. Um, and then at chapter 29, and this is a great chapter really, um, and it, remi- it takes us back to the story when, when the tabernacle was being built. Because in this chapter, David tells about how he has provided huge amounts of material for the temple. And, and we already knew that. I mean, he did it by, by conquering other peoples and taking loot. But look what he does in this chapter in, in verse 3 and, and following. What is that? He says, I give to the house of my God over and above all that I have already provided for the holy temple. So David had his own personal money. And here he is taking 3,000 talents of gold 7,000 talents of silver out of his personal treasury and giving that to this work. And then he's using that as motivation for others to do the same thing. And so we find that in verse 6, the rulers and the princes and all these people, they also offered willingly. And the total for them was 5,000 talents of gold and 10,000 talents of silver. Um, And then they also gave precious stones and all this. And in verse 9, the people rejoiced because they had offered so willingly, for they made their offering to the Lord with a whole heart, and King David also rejoiced greatly. And that reminds us of what Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. These people are, are rejoicing that they are able to have a part in this great work to build a temple to God. And that reminds us back in, in, the, day, in the book of Exodus when they were raising the money for the tabernacle they were they raised so much what they have to do 
Yeah, they had to say, stop, no more. No more. We've, got, we've got more than we can ever use already. Um, it was a great credit to the, the people, and this is a great credit to the people as well, that this, this temple is a work of the whole people, and they're just delighted to, to be a part of it. And, and then later in the chapter, David makes a, a really good point. Um, He he says, yeah, let me start reading in verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. So then in verse 14, he says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you and from your hand we have given you. Isn't that great? He recognizes that there's not a thing we, we, we have, there's not a thing we can see with our eyes or even have heard of with our ears that didn't come from God. What can we ever offer God and say, here God, I'm sure you'll be very impressed with this gift. (laughs) He gave it to us in the first place. If it wasn't for God, we wouldn't have something to offer to Him. And that's the point that David's making here. It's just a wonderful point. Um, True, of course, to this day. John? And all these... The people see all these great treasures going into this wonderful temple that bears their God's name, and the people fall away, and the temple is sacked, and all these great treasures are distributed. Uh, but God didn't lose any of these. <laughs> it's yeah. still there. Yeah, that's a, it's a sad story. What ends up happening to the temple, which of course that's the whole story of Chronicles. <clears throat> what, what's in what's going to end up happening to it? But for now, it's just a it's a wonderful story. Um, and we're going to see Solomon is going to make some statements similar to this at the dedication of the temple. So let's turn to the, the next chapter here. Um, and Solomon is now the king. Uh, and the first, the first act that the chronicler mentions... Now, of course, you, you, you recall the, the writer of Kings covers a very different... Um, Set of stories for most all of these kings. I mean, there's some overlap, but but a lot of difference. And and so, Kings talks about the threat from uh, Solomon's brother Am Amnon. Was it Amnon? Was he the guy that proclaimed himself the king? No, he was the guy that, that raped his sister. <laughs> it's too. I'm pretty sure the guy is, it starts with the letter A, though. So. He had several A's. Yeah. No, that's not it either. Well, anyway. Well, it was after Absalom. Absalom, of course, was dead by the time Solomon became king. But there was... It was the fourth son of David who tried, who claimed that he was king and declared himself king and Solomon ended up having to kill him. None of that story is in Chronicles. Did you find the answer? Adonijah. Okay, great. Yeah, A, there you go. <laughs> I'll just remember his initial. And none of that is in 
Chronicles. Chronicles is looking at a different aspect of things. By the way, here we are covering the same set of stories from two different angles. First in Kings, then in Chronicles. Where else in the Bible do we have a story that is covered from, from more than one angle? The Gospels. That's exactly right. When we get to there, we're going to see that each of the Gospel writers has a different angle that he's viewing Jesus from. Okay, so in, in Chronicles, the first thing he does in, in the story is he goes up to, to Gibeon. Now, Jerusalem was the capital, but Gibeon was a little bit north in the, in the territory of Benjamin. And what was it, Gibeon? You've got half of it right. Tabernacle. Where was the ark? It was in Jerusalem. Yeah. There were two tabernacles at this time, and there were two high priests. One was in Jerusalem, and one was at Gibeon. And, and during the very early on in Solomon's reign, he deposed the, uh, the high priest who was the high priest in, in Gibeon. Um, because he had taken part in the, in Adonijah's rebellion, that's not a, again. That's not in Chronicles. Um, so, the, but they got back down to one high priest, and pretty soon they're going to be down to just one temple. The the, the tabernacles will all be packed up and stored away. Um, so there he is, and at Gibeon, and he has a dream, and God asks, "What what?" Yeah, what shall ask what I shall give you. And what does he ask for in his dream? Wisdom, yes. And God is very pleased with that and, and says, you know, I'll give you the other things you didn't ask for too. Which is kind of a reminder of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And that and that was essentially what Solomon was doing by seeking for wisdom. And I he Solomon, of course, he didn't do a perfect job of it, but Chronicles doesn't mention that. <laughs> the, the failure from the from the standpoint of the Book of Chronicles, the failure appears in in Rehoboam's reign. When we read Kings, we understand that it was already started with with Solomon. So we have here um, uh, just kind of a summary of of his wisdom and his power and. and at the end of chapter one, um, in verse fifteen, this is this this is this comes back again in, later in the story. The king made silver and gold as plentiful in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedars as plentiful as sycamores in the lowland. Now, now understand. I mean, this is we talk the same way as this. I mean, this is not literal. I mean, you could not go through Jerusalem and count how many stones and say, okay, that's that's how many blocks of gold there are in. Or gold blocks of silver. This is we, we we talk like this all the time, and, and we, the author never intended us to try to do some kind of a, a mathematical comparison here with, you know, how many stones they paved the roads <laughs> in the city with, with how with gold and silver. But it, it does. It, it's it's a sort of a poetic way of expressing the fact that the people of Israel were wealthy at this time. The, the peace that David had achieved by conquering all these lands here. In fact, the map goes way on up and, and, and way below this even. It, it was a huge area that David had conquered and that Solomon was over. 
It enabled them not only to get tribute from all these lands, but to have uh, trade. Um, the merchants could could succeed because you know, they didn't have to worry about um, uh, customs at the borders and and wars going on. All this it was just it, it was just a time of great prosperity. And and this was God's blessing on the people. It was a foreshadowing of the prosperity under Jesus. With the temple being, of course, the climax of it all. And so now we turn to chapter 2. Um, and Solomon is now preparing to build the temple. Of course, we've talked about before that in the book of Chronicles, certain stories are given a lot of space. And, and it gives us a sense of pace when we read it like this, when we go chapter after chapter after chapter about the temple, we really think a lot about it. And that's the whole point. It, 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 the emphasis is here. Each chapter giving us some, a little, little more detail or an emphasis one place or another. Chapter 2, they're still preparing for it, but he, he's going to get help out from outside of his country. And who's going to help? The king of Tyre. Now... Tyre, Tyre and Sidon are both in Phoenicia. And the guy that the king of Tyre sends is actually from, from Sidon, but it was all part of the same, um, same nation, really. Um, and, and the king of Tyre had been friends with King David and had helped David to build himself a palace. And so now he's going to help uh, build the temple. Think of the spiritual meaning of this. That here you have the, this, this temple of the God of the whole world and the temple is being built by Jews, his special people, but helping in it are Gentiles. Uh, I, I'm sure that that was intended to be foreshadowed by this story. That it is something that God has given the Gentiles some gifts that He hasn't even given the Jews, and and so they they're able to combine and build this temple. And the king of Tyre has some nice things to say about the Lord God in this chapter, although again he's not. You know, he's not a worshiper of God like Solomon is, but he's um, back in those days, people were willing to accept a lot of gods, and so he, he his view was, you know, I got my God, you got your God, your God's great, and you know, really, I'm I have nothing bad to say about him, <laughs> and and so they work out a deal, and Solomon's going to pay him mostly in food because. Um, uh, the uh, the Phoenicians did not they did not have enough land to be able to feed themselves, and so they had to import it. And, and Israel had enough uh, farmland they they could grow extra food, and, and he could export it to well, Tyre and Sidon. So then, in chapter three, they actually get started. And I, I've got this slide from last week to show where it was. Um, what what was what was the event that picked the location for the temple? Yeah, you had this plague going on, and the angel stopped, and he stopped as he was heading down toward Jerusalem. This, this was Jerusalem in David's day, called the city of David. And he stopped right at the threshing floor of Arauna. Um, he too was a, a Gentile. He was a Jebusite. So again, you have these different little threads here bringing in uh, Gentiles and Jews for this. 
And, and David bought the threshing floor and he offered and built an altar there and offered a sacrifice to God because there the angel had stopped killing the people with the plague. And that, God then revealed them, that was the place for the temple. So here when you have the... This is the city as it was in the days of Nehemiah. That's the best I could find in the maps I had access to. But you can see how it grew a lot bigger. And most of this growth was in the time of Solomon. Edersheim suggests that probably the city had the greatest population in the days of Solomon of any time before the exile into Babylon. Um, and, and so from a small little walled city here, they kept growing and growing and kept expanding the walls around it. Um, here's the temple. David's palace would have been down here in the city of David, but um, Solomon built his palace a little bit lower down from the temple. It was on a mountain or a hill, I guess we should say. A little bit below that, Solomon put his palace there. And I don't know what happened to David's palace. Although that movie I told you about um, that's on the internet actually has some pictures of the excavation of David's palace. Uh, they, they think they found where it was and they found the foundations of it. They said based on the foundations, they think it was six stories tall. So David, he had no slouch of a palace, but Solomon's, I'm sure, put it to, to shame. Um, Okay, so then, um, verse three, chapter that we're into, Second Chronicles three, verse three. These are the foundations which Solomon laid, and it starts giving us the, the dimensions. And I've got a picture of a floor plan. Um, now, I don't believe that the whole thing's a scale. Um, I think there's more room in this inner court, and I'm sure there's more room in this outer court here than what's shown here. So this is sort of a stylish. Uh, uh, plan, but in a, pic- in a moment we'll, uh, I'm going to show you a picture of, of what they think the, the the building might have looked like. Uh, so first we have to we have to understand from the floor plan just to get an idea of it. Uh, it's it has the same plan as the tabernacle had, but the dimensions are all doubled, so that this first place is now um, 20 cubits long. Whereas with the tabernacle it was ten cubits long, the second room, the holy of holies, is now ten by ten by ten, where originally it was five by five by five. Um, the um, they made a few changes inside. They, they still have the altar of incense, but instead of a single lampstand, they now have ten lampstands. Instead of a single table of showbread, they have ten tables of showbread. Um, Outside, it's the same. You had the, the the altar of bronze, and then you had the uh, uh, the laver, which they now call the sea because it's so humongous. Um, and when when we get to uh, Revelation and talk about the sea, we'll see that there's a there's probably an intentional connection between this idea of sea and for, so there's a reason why it would be called the sea. Here's a question I want to ask. In, in all of this that you're seeing here, how much was brought in without being rebuilt, but brought in just as it was into the temple? The Only the ark. Yes, here we have the ark. And I think they've turned this wrong. They've got, the, they've got it pointed this way. I think it was pointed this way. And in the next picture, you'll see it pointed that way. Uh, the ark underneath two brand new statues of cherubim the ark itself has statues of cherubim on top of it, which I'm sure stayed there. 
but they but he put these huge ones with their big wings. The one one wing touching the wall, the other wing touching the wing of the next one, and then all the way to the wall. Just they were enormous statues. Um, and then the, there are steps, different courts here with with steps uh, going up. It's all, always going up to, uh, and there there's steps from the holy place on into the holy of holies. That's the highest place. All right. So now it's time to look at the picture. Um, you, from where you are, you can't read this writing. Um, I, I know that, and that, that's unfortunate. Um, if, if you're interested, uh, I can give you a link on the web where you can where you can get this picture, uh, or it, you can just search, just go to Google Images and search for Solomon Temple, and it'll come out on the first page. <laughs> now, I really like this picture. It just really gives a, a feel for the the magnificence. I mean, you just see the gold in here and all, and, and um, the size. You can see, you know, there's a priest in there. There's a priest offering at the altar. Here, here's the priest next to the sea, and just you just—it's just an amazing scale here. Um, you have these folding doors covered with gold. Inside the floor, and everything else was covered with gold. They had. They built it in um, so that they could have windows at the top. You see how they have these storage buildings around the outside. Now, this was not part of the original tabernacle plan. Um, this is something new, but uh, they needed places to put things. I assume, that, for example, they would have put the old tabernacle in there. I mean, you couldn't desecrate it. What are you going to do with it? The old lampstands, you know, all those things. They would have stored them in these, these storerooms here, three stories high. But there was enough room at the top where you could still have windows at the very top to let light in. Uh, the, and the, the outer rooms were built in a special way so they didn't violate the sanctity of the, of the temple. And that is that these beams here that supported the floors did not go into the wall. They, the, the wall was, was created stepped so that they could just rest on the top of the wall. And, and, and that all is described in the description about how they, bu- they built this temple. <clears throat> Only the priests would have seen the inside of the temple. Yeah, that seems so, like such a shame, doesn't it? <laughs> just those windows at the top, with all of that gold, that would reflect the light. <laughs> it would have been an amazing sight, yes. Yeah, but the people could see that ladder and have the priest standing next to it. That would be pretty impressive. Yeah, they, they could see everything else on the outside, including the the the, uh, the gold covered doors and these uh, these huge columns that help support the porch. Yeah, and then here are these portable lavers on wheels that were that were used for washing the the animals that they were sacrificing. All right. Um, So any questions through chapter 3 then? All right. Um, chapter 4 tells about the furniture they made. Um, and, and to me, the picture helps a lot because when it talks about the sea, it talks about how it's on the backs of these oxen. And you can see the oxen there. Um, and then finally in chapter 5, we have the dedication. 
we're still going to stay on this picture. Um, Solomon had a, a special bronze platform built um, in front of all this where he stood for, for the ceremony. And it's interesting that um, he's the one that, that's the focus of the whole ceremony. The high priest isn't even really mentioned in, in this. Of course, Solomon didn't do the things the priests could do. I mean, he didn't go inside the temple and certainly not, not go inside the most holy place, but he was the one that, that officiated the dedication. What was the feast? There was already an existing feast that they used for this dedication. What was it? It was in the seventh month. What is that feast? The Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, it's the one I've talked about how the kids probably liked that. You got to camp out for a week. Um, and, and it commemorated, this is, this is a very interesting connection here, it commemorated what? The time when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. When they were wandering in the wilderness, what did they use to worship God with? A tent. God was in a tent too. So now here you have this, this feast that commemorates the fact that people have been wandering around and finally they are done wandering. They've got a permanent place, a permanent capital, a permanent house for God. The truth of the matter is, they're not done wandering. They, they'll only be done wandering when sin is removed. Because they're going to have to go into captivity again after this because of their sins. And the, and the temple's going to be destroyed all because of their sins. Um, there's a sense that we're still wandering today. We're still, I mean, as Paul talks about in the book of Romans, you know, we're groaning, uh, wanting to be clothed. Uh, we're looking forward to the time when the wandering is done. We're pilgrims on earth. Um, but the temple represents the answer for everyone's longings. The time when God will be with His people as we find at the end of the book of Revelation. Alright, so the, they bring in the ark. They, they, um, well, as soon as the ark comes into the temple, what happens then um, in the temple? The effect of the priests. The glory of God filled the temple. The priests couldn't even stand there. It was just... Too, there was too much glory. And which kind of reminds us of God's statement to Moses, nobody can see my face and live. I mean, there's just too much glory there. And so Solomon then has his speech of dedication in chapter 6. And he kind of reviews the fact that um, they finally got to a place where they're settled. And that's the gift of God. Um, and so he, he, Solomon stands on this bronze platform where everyone can hear him, see him, and, and he prays a prayer to God. And he begins by praising God. In verse 14, this is chapter 6, There is no God like you in heaven or earth, keeping covenant, showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. And then he, and then he starts... Um, he makes a statement in verse 18 that reminds us a lot of Stephen's speech in, in Acts chapter 7. Will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which, which I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. So what he's pointing out is, this is not where God lives, folks. You know, God can't be contained in anything that we can imagine. But this does represent the presence of God, and as such, 
it is suitable for us to pray toward. Because when we pray toward the temple, we're praying toward the God of, of all the earth. And, and so he, he continues in the, in the chapter with prayers that people are going to pray toward the temple. And sometimes a long way away from the temple, when they've, if they've sinned and they've been taken captive, which of course would have had a lot of meaning for the original readers of the book of Chronicles because the book was written after they came back from captivity and they were just small in number. And, and they would remember that God had indeed heard their prayer while they were captives and had brought them back. Um, so he goes through all this, wanting God to, begging God to please listen to the prayers that people pray when they're at the temple or when they're facing the temple or when they're in captivity and thinking about the temple. Listen to their prayers and answer. Then in chapter 7, it mentions again the glory, but it mentions one more thing that, that hadn't been mentioned earlier, but this same thing happened with the, with the tabernacle. What's that? Fire. Fire. Yeah, fire came down from heaven and burned up the offering. Exact same thing happened with the tabernacle. Unfortunately, with the tabernacle, what happened right after that? They David and Abihu then took strange fire into God and God burned them up along with having already burned the sacrifices. None of that happened here. This They, they learned the lesson. And um, But both times, God is the one who's lighting the fire on the, on the altar. And, and again, there, there is deep symbolism with this that everything we offer to God really comes from Him. And it's only in God that it can be acceptable. With us, it's acceptable because of the sacrifice of Jesus. That's the fire that came down from God when, when, he, when he consumed His Son on the cross. And, and it's only in that fire that any of our sacrifices can be acceptable to God. If any of us would try to just bring ourselves, our own righteousness on our own to God, we would get burned up just like Nadab and Abihu did. Um, all right, so in chapter seven, they had their they had their feast for seven days, and um, and then God appeared to to Solomon and told him that he heard his prayer and was listening to him. Um, but he has some things that it's just too bad Solomon didn't listen more carefully. In verse seventeen, this is chapter seven seventeen. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, even to do according to all that I have commanded you, will keep my statutes and my ordinances. Then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with your father David, saying, You shall not lack a man to be ruler in Israel. But if you turn away, which is of course what happened, and it's a sad, sad end. And he warns even the temple itself will be, will be destroyed if the people turn away from following him. Now we just have a little bit to wrap up the reign of, of Solomon. Because... From the, from the standpoint of the chronicler, building the temple is what, is what Solomon did. <laughs> so, he had some other accomplishments. In chapter 8, um, he, he built various cities. And so we go back to this map and, and um, he mentions uh, he built uh, Beth Horon, um, various other storage cities, um, it's just part of the, the great prosperity and success that Solomon had. But one thing that I found interesting was in... Um, let me see what verse is this in. Um, 
Verse 17. Yeah. And Solomon went to Ezion and Geber and to Eloth on the seashore in the land of Edom. Now, that's way down here. This is on the... Um, I believe it's called the Gulf of Aqaba um, off of the Red Sea. I'll show you another map in a minute. But um, the, He controlled all of Edom. So he went down to Ezion and Geber and he teamed up with Hiram, the king of Tyre. And they were great. That, the Phoenicians were great seafarers. And they built some ships. And it says they... Um, from there they went to Ophir and got gold. Now here is... We've zoomed out a long way here because right there, that's where Ezi and Geber is at the tip of the, of the Gulf of Aqaba on the Red Sea. And probably, we don't know for sure, but probably this is Ophir here at the tip of, uh, of the Arabian Peninsula. And they, they went down there and, and, would, and got themselves a bunch of um, merchandise to bring back. Uh, to I'm sure that he shared it with the Phoenicians, but it helped. It was part of what was helping make um, Israel wealthy. And then also you can see down at that area is probably where Sheba was. And we have the, in chapter nine we have the visit of the Queen of Sheba. She had heard of his greatness, uh, the greatness of Solomon. Maybe she heard from the ships that went down to Ophir. I don't know, but she couldn't believe it. So she came to find out. And what you have to admire is someone going that far to find out if there really is a person as wise as they claim Solomon is. And uh, did Solomon meet her approval? <laughs> she said, the half had not been told me. I just can't believe it. And she came with a bunch of questions, and I don't know what these questions were, but Solomon was able to answer them. And wouldn't you like... I mean, just think about it. Wouldn't you like to be able to go to see someone great like this and get your questions answered? I mean, things that you've just been worried and puzzled over for so long, you can go and, here's, you know, Solomon, here's what I've been thinking about. Well, do you know who Solomon represents? He represents Jesus. We can. We can take our, our problems to Him. He's got all the wisdom there is. And, that, and that's what this is trying to tell us. And you remember when Jesus was, was so disappointed in the people He was preaching to, and He says... The Queen of the South came from, from you know, the ends of the earth to hear Solomon's wisdom and a greater than Solomon is here. And that's the one that we, that we worship. That's the one we're going to be singing songs to shortly and praying to. So it's a great story. The Queen of Sheba there in, in, um, in chapter 9. And then it mentions some more things. His amazing throne which was at, at ivory and, and gold inlaid in it. And it had... Statue of the twelve lions on the on the steps going up to it. It was just amazing, and and his dreamy vessels were all made out of what gold. gold yeah, then I'm going to use something junky like silver for <laughs> in his palace. Um, yeah, it's just and all. If we understand this is all typifying the spiritual wealth of Jesus and His kingdom, we can understand why it's in the Bible like this. Now, unfortunately. It had the effect on the people that money has had on the effect on people since time immemorial. And the, the Solomon's own, um, uh, well, Solomon himself as king and, and his administration was corrupted by this, by this money and by all, all the political alliances he was making. The Book of Kings talks about this. Chronicles doesn't mention it. But we see in, in chapter 10 when we, when we have Solomon's son, 
Solomon's son grew up in this decadent uh, luxury. Now, luxury in itself is not wrong. God gave Abraham luxury. He gave, I mean, he deliberately gave it to Solomon. But it has this danger that we can forget where it came from and we can start worshiping the luxury rather than worshiping the giver of the luxury. And and the people had they they had been gradually drifting away from God until we find in the days of Rehoboam we're just shocked. You know, where did this come from? Well, it came from people forgetting who was the giver of every good gift. And so um, we'll take a look at the time chart again. We finished Solomon, and that's the last one in the in the United Kingdom. And now we're going to do Rehoboam. We'll, we'll have a mention of Jeroboam, but really, we're only going to follow these kings here in the southern kingdom. In, um, in, the, in Chronicles. So, the Rehoboam went to Shechem to be made king. And that's kind of a puzzle. We don't know why, but it's kind of a hint that something might not be perfectly right because the capital was Jerusalem. That would be the proper place for him to be made king. Shechem was the ancient capital. Um, and really it was the center of the northern tribes. So the, there's some reason why he, he's, he's going to where the northern tribes are. And when he got there, they made a request. And what was their request? It's easier. Make things easier. We, we didn't realize that when we were reading about Solomon, but... He had become so powerful that he he had imposed a very heavy burden on his own people. He had become a dictator, living like dictators do. And once he's gone, and, and the new king, it hasn't really gotten going yet. He doesn't have his power. They they would like some concessions. You know, promise to make things easier. We don't want to go on like this. I mean, it was okay for the seven years when he was building the temple, but. Solomon didn't stop there. He, he, then he had 13 years of building his palace and he built all these other storage cities and just kept going and it was just a heavy burden on the people. Although Samuel, years before, had warned them what was going to happen if they, if they got a king. Um, now the descendants of those people who said, yeah, yeah, we, we want him anyway. They're, they're not so happy about it. And so um, Rehoboam got some very wise advice from the counselors who had counseled his father. Um, which um, I don't know how much counsel Solomon needed, but he certainly had elders that, that served with him and maybe they learned from his own wisdom. <coughs> um, they understood what a king was about. And, and the, you hardly ever get a king who understands this, but a king is a king to serve the people. Jesus said that's why He came. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He was the king of all kings, but he was there to serve the people. David was that kind. David served the people. But by the end of Solomon's reign, he wasn't serving the people. They were, they were serving him. And Rehoboam had seen nothing in his whole life. He'd seen nothing but fabulous luxury and great power. And when he counsels with the, the young men who grew up with him, they all have this view that, hey, those people are supposed to be obeying you. You're not serving them. They're serving you. Let them know from day one, 
you don't get pushed around and, and, you'll, and your reign will be off to a good start. And so he takes that foolish suggestion. And you know he stands up like a, a bunch of hot air and just tells these people how he, he's going to be tougher than his dad was. And, and that does it. Ten tribes break off. And in, um, in chapter 11, here he is. That's all he's got down here in the south, the green part. And Israel has the rest, but he gathers a big army, 180,000. They're going to go get the kingdom back. I don't know how this battle would have would have ended up if it had taken place. I know later on we have a battle where Israel cleans up on these people. I mean, Israel's got more more soldiers than 180,000, and they just they just decimate the, the southern army. But this battle didn't happen. Why? Yes, God sent a message saying, "This is from me. Don't go to this battle." And they listened. And when you see how Rehoboam lives later, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> they listened. They obeyed God. So Rehoboam then um, built a bunch of cities. Verses five through ten, he fortified a bunch of cities. And interesting enough, on our map, all these cities are, are kind of in an arc like this, south of Jerusalem. Now I think he did have some all the way up as far as into the realm of Benjamin, but he had no cities guarding against Israel. What enemy is he afraid of if he's building all these cities down here? Forts. Egypt, yes. And in next week's lesson, it's going to begin with an invasion from Egypt. All these fortresses didn't solve the problem. He still got invaded. And then we have a brief mention of Jeroboam. And and the reason why it mentions Jeroboam is not because we're going to follow Jeroboam. We're not. But because he had kicked out the priests and so all the priests who were living up in this territory who were loyal to God moved down to Judah and they supported Rehoboam. Which not only helped the kingdom of Judah, but it helped keep Rehoboam faithful to God because these people, of course, are the most loyal to God that are moving down there. And so for the first three years of his reign, he and the people were faithful to God. But it's going to change when we get into next week's story. Any last questions or comments? Yeah, John. Uh, the first people to leave were supposed to be small in number. They were supposed to be rebuilding the temple. Yes. Uh, and they would have read about the king of Tyre graciously offering help. And these people, the immediate neighbors, offered help. Yeah, they turned down. They turned down. Well, now, but that's not exactly when the, the, the book was written after the temple was rebuilt. Probably it was, re, it was written in the days of Ezra. And, and that was uh, many decades after the temple had been rebuilt. So that would have been historical. Yeah, it would have been historical. Their, their fathers were the ones that did that. And they would have seen how. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to criticize them. That would have been disaster if they'd, got, right. if they'd become partners with the Samaritans. That's right. They had some neighbors with goodwill. Yeah. Anything else? All right. I appreciate everyone's help this morning. Thank you.